You've had a very good lesson from the Acts of the Apostles, a chapter which I suspect is uh, vaguely unfamiliar to most of you. The account of that marvelous and terrifying voyage upon which St. Paul finds himself, one of his great adventures in Acts 27. And the text is this tenth verse. I can see that this voyage will be with danger and much heavy loss, not only of cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. It's a rather grim prediction on the part of St. Paul, and we hope that in this, as in a few other matters, he is quite wrong. But I can see that the voyage will be with danger and much heavy loss, not only of cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Paul is nothing if not a realist. He casts his beady eye on the situation and assesses it quite carefully and clearly. It is a dangerous enterprise full of tremendous risk. And not only is it likely that the goods, the wheat, the cargo will be lost, but the lives of those on the ship, the human cargo, also will be compromised, if not lost, and destroyed. And yet this is not a counsel of despair, for Paul fully intends to go on the journey. It is not to be called off. It is not in any way uh, to to be compromised from being carried out. But he casts a serious eye upon the risks that are there and states them. I can see that the voyage will be with danger and much heavy loss, not only of cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Now, I think I know what I was doing when on a bright summer's day a year ago I chose these lessons from Acts 27 for the last Sunday of term, for Senior Sunday. I can also see my mind in a slow rerun of what was going through it. The story, of course, has everything in it, everything one could possibly want. Captivity, shipwreck, danger, opportunity, a vision of God. Paul is, as usual, calm under pressure. There is eventual rescue and delivery. And I probably saw in all this a vague parable for seniors, one which they, of course, would be less, least likely to appreciate or enjoy. Nevertheless, there it was. Life is an adventure fraught with dangers like a sea voyage under hazardous conditions. The sea is enormous and capricious, and your little boat is vulnerable. You may think that you are in charge, but you really are not. You are dependent upon the elements, upon the seaworthiness of your craft, upon the work which others have done, and upon the work that others will do with you 
if there is any hope of survival. The word is to be careful and to go with God. Be of good courage. It is not, as we read here, God's intention to waste your life or your time. It is not God's obligation, however, to make your life or your time easy. And despite all of the entitlements which college provides, especially this one, you will have to make your way with some assurance of difficulty. There is no other way. Who says it should be otherwise? Those who tell you this have not lived and are not speaking candidly. The greatest challenge that will be faced by those who leave this place and many others will not be what to do with your enormous success, but how to manage when things don't go your way. Do you stop and go back? Do you mourn for the lost opportunity? Or do you risk the speed limit and press ahead? That was not an illustration upon which I had counted this morning, but there it is. One should use whatever comes to hand. And so, I assume this would be good material for seniors and those who love them to think about as they make their way from this very safe haven and harbor called college into a less predictable, indeed for many, less agreeable environment. I think those of us who teach here and who manage to operate this place, we would like to think that we have prepared you for all of this, but if we tell the truth, we have not. We have done everything in our power to protect you from harm and from danger, often from yourselves and certainly from others. The price that you will have to pay for our failure is the price that you will have to pay. There is no other way about it. We have not done all that we could, and in the last days of college, many of us are filled with remorse at the thought of lost opportunity. A seasonal or timely word to somebody might have made a difference. A slight adjustment in our demeanor or deportment. A particularly characteristic act, taken or not taken. We might have made more of a difference than we have. Many of you will leave this place in spite of us. Some of you will leave because of us. Some of you will be glad to go. Most of you, not knowing any better, will want to stay. We will watch from this safe and distant shore, wishing you well and welcome you back every five years, you and or your check. The struggles, however, will be yours, not ours, and the accomplishments will be yours and not ours. We can and do tell you what we know, and you do not know as yet. These are the things we can offer to you. We can tell you that you will make it. Others less qualified, and in some cases more qualified than you, have. We know this because we know you to be fundamentally brave and adventurous souls. And God has not brought you this far 
to abandon you or forget you. God has invested too much in each of you to allow you to be cast as shipwrecks upon the shore. In fact, we are depending upon you, and we are depending upon you and God to follow your dreams, to pursue your great adventure, and to be faithful in the pilgrimage upon which you are about to embark. We have more at stake in you than just getting rid of you. For you are our hope. You who leave are to take up the duties and the responsibilities that we who remain have not done all that well with. We have watched you grow, in many cases, most of you into fine and able persons, capable of much. We are in awe of your talent, your capacity for multitasking, your ability to do many things well at the same time. That you will be tested and meet disappointment and danger of that, we have no doubt. We also know that you have it in yourselves to arrive safely and wisely in a safe haven, and that we will have been proud and pleased to have known you. Few who do not teach are aware that the great privilege of teaching is not simply imparting information. It is sharing in the growth of the mind, the life, the body, and the spirit of remarkably capable and interesting young people. It is an opportunity many of us cherish to sort of live our lives over again through you, with you, and in some measure because of you. Now, if this sounds something like a uh, baccalaureate valediction, it is. Because here at Harvard, for well over 300 years, it has been the custom that the president gives the baccalaureate address and not the preacher. And so, for 27 years, I have sat there listening to three-plus presidents of the university do their best to articulate what I'm sure I could articulate with much better effect. <laughs> I am not the president, and so I take the opportunities that, that are given to me when they come. And the last Sunday of the term is one of those opportunities. It gives me a chance to remind all of you who are not students that we are privileged to worship together with students in this church. And that although they all may not be here in the numbers we might like or wish, they are all around us. And we should not fail to speak to those who are here in favor of those who are not. And so on this last Sunday of the term, I exercise the right of the preacher to speak to and in behalf of those who will be leaving. I speak in my own name, but I also speak in the name of the rest of us who are staying behind. For we are truly diminished by your departure as we have been enhanced by your presence. My colleagues in the music department each year wonder how ever will we replace the great and glorious talent that has served God and this church so faithfully over the year. And every year they are replaced. 
Every year new and wonderful singers and instrumentalists appear and they delight us and they make us think at this time of the year that it will never ever be the same again. Realizing that it will be that God has a constant supply of able and talented people to join us and to enrich us does not in any way diminish our sense of obligation and delight, indeed pleasure, in those who have been here and who are leaving. It would be churlish to forget them. It would be foolish not to make that acknowledgement today. In my last chapel talk a few weeks ago in Athlon Chapel, I spoke of my annual travels to the colleges and schools across the country where I have the pleasure of speaking at commencements and baccalaureates. And I have done three of those this year, and over the years, 36 of them. Some think I do this for the ego gratification of collecting honorary degrees. I confess I like honorary degrees. I'm delighted to have them. They give me colorful hoods to wear on Sunday morning, nearly a different one for each of the Sundays on which I am on duty. They are decorative, and they suggest that somewhere, somehow, somebody thinks well of what I do, or am trying at least to do. That pleases me very much indeed. I do not own a basketball or a football team. I do not have vast sums of money to dispense on deserving institutions. And I have invented nothing of any significance anywhere in the world. Thus, I do not fall in the normal category of honorands. But when some small school or college decides that the Harvard preacher is worthy of such recognition and invites me to do the only thing I can do, which is to talk in their company, I'm thrilled to do so. Degrees, however, are not the principal reason that I am willing to travel hither and yon for these purposes. The reason I do it is that I take personal energy from the energy of the young in those places, the graduates who for one terrifying moment actually believe all of the good things they have heard and are presumed to know and have been taught, all of the good things they are willing to take on in life. They believe in its challenges and its complexity. Their spirit of engagement is infectious. The cynicism of an old hand is lost in the great expectations of the young. It is a case of institutional geritol for me, or serutan, which some of you may remember is nature spelled backwards. There is a sense of being part of something truly great and truly good in participating in these occasions, both abroad and at home, and I rejoice in it. Each year, I see in the faces of these graduates a sense of the wonderful possibilities of life, of the glories of college, which I only can vaguely remember in my own experience, of the capacity for the wonderful possibilities of life and the ideals and ideas that do not perish with the last class. It is reassuring to me that many of them take far more away from this place than even they or we might imagine. 
is they possess a sense of infinite possibility and they have a passion for work and no fear of the unknown. They hope to do some good, to make some difference, to find for themselves, if not for everybody, an adventure worth endeavoring, dangers worthy of encounter, victories worth winning, and lives of value and promise that will honor the places that they go and the persons that they encounter and will do great honor to themselves over the long haul. There is something romantic, even sentimental, about this vicarious thrill. And it is why my favorite season of the whole year, including all the liturgical glories, is the season of new life that we call commencement. And that here at Harvard, this church and my job find me at the center of all of that is just an added bonus. No one who has not had this experience or been in such a place can fully appreciate it. It will look like so much mumbo-jumbo, so much posturing and carrying on, that at heart there is a vital transaction that takes place, an exciting exchange. The Ilan Vital is shared between the generations. And that is something thrilling. I suspect some of you have a clue to that, which is why you have chosen to come to this church rather than the many others that you have passed on your way to this church. You participate somehow, in some way, with that vital spirit, that spirit of expectation, that spirit of promise, which is in the young who surround us and which is particularly found during this season of the year. I still believe in all of that. I believe in it because of what I see each May and each June in the faces of college graduates across the nation. I believe in it because I believe it to be true through my own experience here in Harvard College. And I want to do all that I can to encourage this in every possible way. Nowhere else in the world is there an engaged season of opportunity and optimism, such as is in our commencement season. It is a religious enterprise, as far as I'm concerned, a godly errand, a full-of-hope, full-of-vision moment. We cherish it and we cultivate it. We are privileged to be a part of it. Now, the image of a journey, despite Paul, in the long lesson we had today, is not a bad image. And if you are indifferent to or fearful of journeys or adventure, the only advice that is worth giving to you is the advice which the late George Plimpton gave on these steps to a college class at Harvard all about 30 years ago. It was the shortest commencement talk on record which is why I remember it, because I don't give short commencement talks. George said to a Harvard class on class day, very clearly and very simply, these words, don't go. They loved it, of course. Not only was it short, but it reflected a certain sense that this place, with all of its endowed 
part and subsidized benefits. This was the place to stay. Someone recently said the only other place that is quite like college is an old folks' home where everything is laid on for you. And when you're there, by and large, you're probably too gaga to appreciate all of the subsidized benefits that are provided for you. College is very much like that, and the last would appear to be the beginning, and that nursing home is at the other end. When you think about it, there is something quite remarkable about an institution devoted to the life of the mind, and not incidentally to the life of the spirit with which that mind has to operate, where all of the mundane cares are provided so that those who live here can spend their days in thinking and in cultivating their interior life. Where else on earth does that happen? Not in your job, really in mine. But for four years, we take people, place them in a beautiful setting in which all of the necessities of life are cared for by other people. And what do we require of them? That they read, that they think, that they write, that they hope, that they aspire. And something of that privilege, which some of them appreciate while it is happening, rubs off on the rest of us, and we are pleased to be a part of this enterprise. It's very understandable that people would want to stay, and it's one of the great benefits of tenure, I might add, that some of us can stay. But we can't allow the seniors to stay, after all. Uh, we've already rented their rooms and their beds to brighter incoming students. Their parents can no longer afford an extra year of uh, tuition and fees. And they know all of our tricks. We know most of theirs, but they know all of ours. That is one of the privileges of teaching people who are smarter than you are. We know more than they do. Of that, there is no doubt. But they're smarter than we are. And when their smartness reaches our level of knowledge, we have an ingenious device. We get rid of them. We give them diplomas and send them out making them feel that this is natural, the way to go, when in fact we cannot bear to have them around much longer because they do know too much and they threaten our little security. So we go through all of this. We share them with the world. It is tempting to want them to stay, but we have come to love many of them, and we flatter ourselves in thinking that some of them might even like us. They know their way around at last. They can make the system such as it is work for themselves. But perpetual tenure for everybody is not the solution. Somebody must live and work out there in the world. And why not the youngest and most ablest of us all who have had the benefit of a college education? For some, I know, it has been four years of perpetual stimulation. Their fingers have been in the light sockets. Their hair is a, is a frizz with the electricity of new discovery. For others, it has been four years of frustration. They have tried a whole host of things, and nothing seems to have worked yet. And for even others, I realize it has also been four years of hibernation. We have yet to see what is to come from them, 
That is why we look forward to the rest of their lives. Whatever it has been for you, if it has been a season of frustration or stimulation or hibernation, we will, on Thursday morning, declare by some Orphic rites that you are fit to leave. And whether you are fit or not, you will leave. Your house superintendents will see to that, and so too will your mother. We will declare that you are fit to leave and that we have the right and the obligations to expect something of you. We might ask ourselves, what is it that we have the right to expect of you who are leaving us on Thursday? It has been the custom on occasions such as this to specify the expectations. Someone here, someone among you, will become very, very rich. Look at Mr. Gates. He didn't even finish his degree, and he is by common consent the richest man in the world. Do you suppose we invited him to commencement because we are interested in his ideas? I leave you to think about the answer to that. I am certain that he's become a role model for many of you, and that you will listen to his every word on Wednesday afternoon at class day for hints as to his success and yours. Some of you will aspire to positions of great leadership and influence. You might indeed become President of the United States. Several graduates of Yale have, in fact. But I hope you have a higher ambition than simply that, because it is clear that anybody could be President of the United States, and perhaps we ought to have a higher expectation of you, or you ought to have a higher expectation of yourself. David McCord, my great friend of the class of 1921, used to say with some delight, the best thing he got out of Harvard was himself. And there may be some truth to that. We'll know something of that on Thursday. Many people with rueful looks on their face will open the envelope and be surprised to find a diploma in it. It is still possible to fool a lot of the people a lot of the time. And Harvard graduates are the very best at doing that sort of thing. Perhaps the best thing that we can hope for you and for us is that you will find not simply a job, but a job worthy of your talents and of those talents that will be useful and sustainable to the rest of us in the world. That you will be stimulated to good works in our behalf and that we can trust you with matters great and small. Maybe that is the reasonable expectation we ought to pose of graduates of a place like this. And particularly of those of you who have from time to time attended reasonably to listening to the Word of God as read and preached here, who have thought and prayed about your own motion and direction in life, and who are concerned for the state of the world. We can hope that you will think hard, that you will work hard, that you will pray hard, that you will play well, that you will laugh often, and perhaps most importantly, our hope for these candidates with degrees is that you will discover gifts and graces within yourselves of which you are now blissfully unaware. Something will blossom and bloom within you which will surprise and delight you and be a joy worth sharing with other people. We hope that you will have the courage of your convictions, 
but also that you will have convictions worthy of your courage. Not all convictions are equal. Not all goals are noble. We hope for you worthy convictions, noble goals, and an ample supply of courage. When I came to Harvard in 1970, one of the great intellectual giants who roamed these corridors and was found hither and yon was a professor of English named Walter Jackson Bate. Some of you will have remembered him. Most of you, alas, will not have. I have had occasion on many times over the course of these last 30-odd years to quote from Walter Jackson Bate, to speak to junior parents and to freshman parents on the several weekends about Walter Jackson Bate and the influence that I think he had upon me and upon the quality of life in his college. You see, Jack Bate was a professor of English whose special, special field was Samuel Johnson that rather dour and grim man who invented the dictionary in 18th century England, and all of whose portraits make him look pudgy and overindulged and unappetizing. He is the man who punctuates every conversation with sir, and is usually a kind of intellectual rebuke. The sort of person you would not want to have coffee with, or want to have as your roommate. But safely dead, Samuel Johnson is an interesting person, and Walter Jackson Bate brought him to life uh, through his course on the age of Jackson and through his great book, The Life of Johnson. Jack Bate pointed out that there were three books, and these are the books that I commend when I speak on these occasions. There were three books which delighted Dr. Johnson, and which he read over and over again and wrote in his own journals that these were the most precious books that had been committed to paper. Each of them in its own way, a kind of parable of his own life and his own ambition. I looked at those books, I looked at that little list of Samuel uh, Johnson, and I thought, this is not a bad core curriculum, not a bad general education, not a bad thing for people who think they know it all to remember and for people who know they don't know enough to contemplate. The three books which uh, Dr. Johnson cherished most were these. He loved Cervantes' Don Quixote. He loved uh, Defoe's Robinson Crusoe. And he loved Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Now, I will not embarrass anybody here by taking a poll, asking how many of you have read even one of these. I would assume that most of you have heard of them, and I will operate on the general assumption that you are interested enough to hear what Dr. Johnson has to say and why I think these are important books for people about to make their departure from a place such as this. When you think of Don Quixote, you must get rid of the man from La Mancha, that is the musical. Please take that wobbling male voice out of your head and do not see this as the anthem for Red Sox Nation, although they have things in common. What Dr. Johnson liked about Don Quixote was his improbable idealism, his sense of outmoded courtly adventure, 
his notion that the beautiful could be found in the most extraordinary of places, and his sense that evil was always to be contested with in the form, principally, of meddlesome windmills. There is something tragic comic about the image of Don Quixote adhering to an old-fashioned, outmoded standard of knightly virtue. And there is something both heroic and pathetic in his persistence in his ideals in the face of what the world called reality. It would seem to be that that kind of idealism is not inappropriate a gift to wish upon the young. For if they are not idealistic whilst young, if they do not battle windmills while they can, if they do not see beauty in the oddest and strangest of places, what will happen when they are as old and cynical and rooted in their prejudices as you and I are? Not very much to be encouraged. And so there is something about wishing that book on people as they leave that I think is part of a godly commission, and I commend it to them. The other second book which Dr. Johnson liked very much, and which Jack Bates speaks to us, is he loved Robinson Crusoe. You may remember that is the book of an 18th century man of letters and of parts who was shipwrecked on a desert island. And what we read of Robinson Crusoe is his need to improvise, to develop a new civilization out of the ruins of the old one, and to discern in the middle of a new and foreign environment what is valuable, what is useful, what can be employed. Robinson Crusoe even has the advantage of contemporary diversity in his man Friday, and without whom it would have been impossible for him to do what he tried to do. The most heroic parts of that book are the swimming back and forth to the ship, the rescuing of bits and pieces of the wreckage, and the construction between the old world of the ship's ruins and the new world of the new desert island, a new society. That is what he does. And he does it with style and imagination. It's almost the blank slate all of us wish if we could start again, if we could start afresh, if we could take only the things we valued and needed from our previous existence. What would they be? And how would we make them work for us? And what would we create out of that? Then the third book, which he most loved, probably the one least read today, is Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. That great book, The Original Purpose-Driven Life, for a pilgrim is somebody who wanders with a purpose toward a destination. A pilgrim is not somebody who is just uh, wandering around not knowing where he or she is going. A pilgrim is somebody who is driven by a destination, whether it is Canterbury in the Canterbury Tales, a Compass della Stella in, in, in Spanish literature, or any of the sources of pilgrimage of which we can read anywhere. A pilgrim is a person with a purpose who is on a journey and is willing to encounter the sufferings, the difficulties, the privations of the journey for the sake of the destination. Pilgrim is described as a man of the book. The book is strapped to his back, and he makes his way through all sorts of adventures, the village of Vanity Fair, 
the Slough of Despond, all of these places that have entered into our language. And at the end he arrives at the celestial city, and all the trumpets sound for him on the other side. He has met interesting people along the way, but he has learned that there is no place in which he can stay. He must go onward. He cannot live forever in the house of the interpreter or stay with friendly or agreeable people. He is driven by his pilgrimage. He is driven toward his goal, toward his purpose, toward his destination. And so here they are, all three of these personalities and characters. An idealist, somebody who is an improviser, and a pilgrim. These are the characteristics by which a good life, a life worth living, is lived. To those three books, I would add another. And it may not be the one you're thinking of. You might think, oh, he's going to say they should also read the Bible. Well, I trust you will dip into it from time to time. And uh, if you can't handle it, come listen to me or some other learned man in divinity to tell you a little bit about it. That's not quite the book I have in mind. And I think Dr. Johnson would be horrified at the book that I do have in mind. But I have it right here in my hand, and certain of you will know it. It is All the Places You'll Go by Dr. Seuss. It's a good book. You ought to take it with you. If you haven't read it in a long time, read it again. Dare I ruin it by saying it's a theological book. It is. All the places you'll go. I must say, in my youth, I never took Dr. Seuss very seriously. That's because my mother didn't take Dr. Seuss very seriously. But the older I get and the more I think about these occasions, the more I realize that there is something to Dr. Seuss and to this book. And if you think it's just for children or just for childhood, then you've missed a lot. Take it up again with these weighty books that I have suggested. I don't think Jack Bates or Dr. Johnson would necessarily approve, but they're both dead, and I'm here telling you this is something worth doing. Congratulations, it says. Today is your day. You're off to great places. You're off and away. You have brains in your head. You have feet in your shoes. You can steer yourself any direction you choose. You're on your own, and you know what you know, and you are the guy who will decide where to go. And wonderfully bizarre illustrations, as only Dr. Seuss can provide. But the point becomes clear. Unless you think this is just one other sort of feel-good uh, Harry book, the next to the last page asks, And will you succeed? Yes, you will indeed. Ninety-eight and three-quarter percent guaranteed. Kid, you'll move mountains. And there's a picture of a kid moving a mountain. So, be your name Buxbaum or Bixby or Bray or Mordecai Alley Van Allen O'Shea. You're off to great places. Today is your day. Your mountain is waiting, so get on your way. Even seniors leaving college can understand that. And if they actually did it, who knows what an enormous difference it might make. The image of that terrifying shipwreck and sea journey which constitutes Acts 27, is still the normative image. It is terrifying out there. It is dangerous out there. The journey is full of all sorts of risks and dangers. And yet there is constancy in that journey. There is a sense that one does not undertake it alone, that the troubles are worth it, and that the destination 
is glorious indeed. Those of us who are on that journey in one form or another, whether we are leaving college on Thursday, or whether we are reconnecting with our first love, whether we are rediscovering who we really are or what our work is all about, we are a part of that great adventure. And the places we'll go are as limited only as the limits of our imagination.